2: Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. This make or break hour begins with turning the page on May. And we have two big interviews this hour to set you up for the months ahead. BlackRock's Rick Reeder joins us in just a bit. He launches his first ever active ETF. He's going to give us the read on the markets, the Fed and where you should be best positioned for whatever comes our way in June and beyond. And Bill Miller, the fourth, is here as well. We'll get his take on the A.I. trade, crypto and much more. And we're watching D.C., of course, we all are, as the debt ceiling vote gets underway at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime, here is your scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. The final day of the month, a bit of a whimper. Major averages all in the red. They've been there throughout the day. Tech taking a bit of a breather today, too. And cyclical areas getting hit as concerns about the economy and another possible rate hike continue to swirl. I think we're all thinking about that. That leads us to our talk of the tape whether summer is likely to bring a swoon or surge for stocks let's ask dan greenhouse soulless alternative asset management he's here with me at post nine welcome back thank you sir closing out the month and we're about to embark on the summer what about that sell-off swoon or surge what do you think
3: yeah, I, listen, I, I think there's a lot of technical reasons to think that that maybe we're up against. The 4200 level is obviously what everybody speaks about the most. But but we've had a pretty good rally here. And if if um, attitudes about the next Fed rate hike in a couple of weeks start to change, you could make a case for a little bit of sell-off back down to the lower end of the range. I don't think that would be uh, particularly deleterious to the to the rally that seems to be happening now.
2: You think we're in a better place than we were months ago? I mean, you've been reasonably cautious, I think. The market looked better to you yeah, or worse I, since we've had this rally? rally. And we can get into the sort of top heavy nature of the rally in, in a moment. But generally speaking, does the market look better to you?
3: Yeah, just as a refresher, like we were pretty bearish. I was pretty bearish all the way in 22. Um, somewhere earlier this year, the technical stuff started to work in your favor. And I think that's largely continued. So I think right now, from a broad market standpoint, you should certainly feel better about the, the market. Uh, at the same time, the top heaviness can't be ignored. I mean again, I mean, this has been over, we've been over this a hundred times. Is but, it a
2: bad thing? I mean uh, people have said it a hundred times or a thousand times. Well you had our mutual
3: friend Brian Belsky on uh, today who, who recently put out some work on this. I, I don't think history is clear. He said it's th- not a bad thing. Yeah, listen, history is not clear that this level of a narrow leadership automatically means lower prices going forward. What I think it does do is leave the market susceptible to downward moves if something should come along that would warrant such a move. And so, so again, like you've got the, the seven or eight, whatever biggest stocks, they're up, call it 30% median or up 30%. The rest of the market is down 2.2% or so this year. Mm-hmm. It's not
2: strong in that respect. What about the AI trade? Um, what do you make of it? As you've you know, sat here, you watch these stocks and, and what they've done, does it make sense to you? Does it make you nervous about whether there's a bubble? How are you thinking about yeah, it? Because everybody is thinking about it.
3: Yeah, and listen, I, I do agree with the general consensus that this is going to be, the. Net, you should think about this, the, the royal you, you should think about this in terms of the move to, to the internet, to desktop, to cloud, and now to AI. It's going to reorient business up and down the spectrum. I think the one point I want to make, uh, I'm excited to be here after this point continues continue to be made for the last month or so, is this idea that somehow part of the move, particularly in NVIDIA, but Avago and everybody else as well, owes to the under-owned nature of tech. And so the only reason or a primary reason that you would get such a dramatic move in some of these names is people are playing catch-up. And I checked because it sounded not correct to me, When you look at hedge fund holdings, the top names in order are Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, Google, Visa, Uber, Apple, and Netflix. And then just a few down that list is is NVIDIA, um, Salesforce, Palo Alto, and PayPal. That doesn't sound to me like an under-owned set.
2: I know, but they can still own those stocks but be lighter in their holdings than they otherwise would have been because most people, I think, did come into 2023 offsides on the tech trade but you can have smaller positions and larger cash and maybe some of that money has yet to come into those areas sure
3: these are the most widely held stocks now again are they under owned relevant for the benchmark obviously that's going to be a fund by fund hedge fund and mutual fund uh, a level of analysis that i don't do being on the buy side but but i i do think what you saw with ai um, not just in terms of the mentions because everybody was mentioning it but but in terms of the rush to take advantage of this uh, you are resetting some of the earnings expectations which warranted some level of appreciation in the names beyond simply everybody catching up to buy them.
2: All right, let's bring in Kristen Bitterly now of City Global Wealth. good to have you here. As part of this conversation as well, how do you see this this very question? Has the market gotten too top-heavy as we turn the page into June? Are these AI stocks out of control? Is it too much too fast? What do you make of it?
0: I think there's a couple of things. Everyone's talked about the concentrated nature of this rally. And when you look at it, those seven stocks that we keep talking about represent more than 100% of the year-to-date gains. And actually, three are responsible for 65%. So I think that creates some exposure in in terms of any type of future volatility. When you also look at net long positioning in NASDAQ, futures, they're at three-year highs. And so you could see some profit taking going into the summer months. That's something that we tend to see from a seasonality perspective. But when it comes to um, AI, I really do think that that's something that, yes, we've seen that concentrated in a few stocks. But when we look at what this could add to the global economy, we're talking about $16 trillion, $7 trillion in productivity gains by 2030. This is something that may feel over-exaggerated short-term, but it's here to stay long-term.
2: I wonder whether Nvidia taught everybody a good lesson this week in saying, well, look at the valuation. My gosh, it's so expensive relative to its earnings. Then they come out with their guidance, which blew everybody out of the water. And then the stock was, why are you falling back in the chair? The stock was cheaper the day after earnings than it was before.
3: But you have Gerstner on all the time who makes this point, as do a lot of other growth investors. You're not looking at these names from a valuation standpoint. I, I think that's a mistake that a lot of investors make looking at NVIDIA and saying, oh, it's trading at 160 times earnings or something. inherently, Inherent in growth investing is an assumption that the E is incorrect. And I think what you've seen historically, not just with NVIDIA, but over the last 10 or 20 years, is for a lot of these names, the E is incorrect. It's not to say that valuation doesn't matter, but growth investing. Uh, Which is not what we do, admittedly, but growth investing requires some semblance or some uh, different level of of investing acumen simply than looking at for deep value, which they're never going to give you.
2: What you can't have happen is what happened in 99 into 2000, where the P gets way off into the distance from the E. And the debate was starting to be had at this point whether, Kristen, those stocks, the large mega cap stocks, had become too expensive relative to where their earnings were in the environment that we're in. NVIDIA sort of said to you, maybe not.
0: There's a couple of things. One, going back to what I just mentioned, this is about addressable market, right? And the opportunity to continue to grow. I think the other thing, not to bring this conversation back to rates, but we have to bring it back to rates. A lot of these companies that have benefited from the rally, that have benefited from inflows, it's about free cash flow generation and this ability to self-fund some of this growth and innovation, which is why you're seeing that big delineation between the profitable companies and the unprofitable companies when it comes to tech. The last thing that I'll say about AI It does not need to be a pure play. It does not need to be in one of those companies that's mentioning AI a 100 times in their earnings calls. It can be in areas like cybersecurity. It can be in areas like clean energy and investing in the energy transformation because AI consumes a lot of energy and that's gonna be a big theme, not just immediately, but looking five, 10 years out.
2: All right, so you mentioned rates. Uh, Tom Harker, Philly Fed president today says, I'm for pause in June. That doesn't mean that I'm for being done, but we can pause in June. Dan was talking about, well, what's the thing that upends the, the tech trade? Is it a more live meeting in June? and maybe a hike thereafter that does that
0: i think it's interesting because every day it seems like we're repricing rates in terms of the probability of a hike in june or july looking at fed funds futures right now obviously it's kind of splitting splitting the difference but i think we have to look at that combined with we've been dominated by this talk of the debt ceiling now what's coming what's coming is monster issuance when it comes to t bills and just over the next month you're going to see about three hundred billion plus flood the market you're going to see another one point three trillion dollars by the end of q3 that's a lot of liquidity out of the market and so i think that's something to be cautious of in terms of the flows that we're going to see over the summer months
2: a lot of people are talking about that yeah and i wonder if it's one of those things where it doesn't turn out to be nearly as dire as some of the predictions around it are that the market's able to absorb that better than some would otherwise think.
3: Yeah, listen, I think this is a somewhat of a complicated issue, so we're not going to get fully into it for the viewer at home. But I do want to say, pardon me, I think a lot of this is a good talking point. And, and I, because... It, Yes, a lot of liquidity is gonna be drained, although we don't know from where that liquidity is coming from, which is a really important part of this conversation, which again, we won't get to. If it comes from bucket A, not a big deal. If it comes from bucket B, a little bit of a bigger deal. But also, the larger pool of liquidity is nowhere near where you were, say, in late 2019, when you had that repo implosion that nobody remembers about, but it engendered this QE before the Fed actually had to do QE for, for COVID. You still have a level of reserves way above that dangerous level, that threshold, where the banking system might be concerned. And we could have another segment another day on it. But this is going to happen. They're going to raise a trillion dollars in in liquidity. I just don't know if it's quite the boogeyman everyone says it is. Actually,
0: I agree with you on this point. I I don't think it's necessarily a boogeyman. Is it something that could create some movement in the rates market? Could it create some volatility? Absolutely. But I think another thing that we have to point to, all of these different events, why are they not raising the VIX? Why are they not creating more volatility? Because of the positioning going into this, when you look at all of those flows that have come into money market funds eclipsing $5.4 trillion, you have a lot of cash on the sidelines. Where's the cash gone? It's gone into T-bills and those stocks that we mentioned um, earlier in the segment.
4: Yeah.
2: Guys, we got to leave it there. I appreciate it so very much. Kristen Bitterly joining us here uh, along with Dan Greenhouse. Thank you. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We want to know, do you think the Fed will raise interest rates in June? You can head to at CNBC closing bell on Twitter vote yes or no maybe you would have answered that differently a few weeks ago i'm not sure but please vote yes or no we'll share the results with you later on in the hour we're just getting started though up next blackrock launching its first active etfs and rick reader cio of global fixed income at blackrock joins me right here at post nine after this break to discuss that we'll get his take on everything markets stocks the fed fixed income and more we're live from the new york stock exchange you're watching closing bell on cnbc
1: Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business
3: insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my
2: policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Welcome back. Stocks and bond yields are both set to finish the last trading day of May lower, capping off what's been a volatile month for the markets. So how should investors be positioned as they grapple with the looming debt ceiling deadline and the Fed's next rate decision? Let's ask the man who oversees nearly $3 trillion in assets, BlackRock's bond king, Rick Reeder, is here with us at Post 9. He's ringing the closing bell today, by the way, to celebrate the launch of his first actively managed ETF. It's good to see you.
5: Good to to be here. Congratulations on that. Thanks a
2: lot. It's, I it's the that. BlackRock Flexible Income ETF, which says that it allocates to harder to reach fixed income sectors. What does that
5: mean? So, I mean, I, you know, one thing I think people forget in fixed income. You know, in fixed income, there's 65,000 securities. So there you've got less liquid assets, you've got liquid assets. The idea is we, we get yield in the portfolio, do it flexibly. Um, things like high yield, emerging markets, securitized assets, and try and keep your yield. When today, we're yielding over 7%. I mean, this is one of the Great things about fixed income today It was the last time you were able to get 7%. And by the way, you don't have to take that much risk to get 7
2: what, what are the harder-to-reach areas that you've identified that need to be reached through this product?
5: <laughs> I mean, what is, the securitized market is one. You talk about a market that is opaque and they're different, whether it's CLOs or, or uh, residential mortgages, uh, commercial real estate. How much commercial real estate? But there are actually some opportunity in high-quality parts of the commercial real estate market. So, The ability to actually dig in and say, where do you want to own it? How much risk do you want to take? What's your collateral? You know, it's hard for an individual, including someone like myself personally. What's the collateral? What's the covenants? What's the structure? So to do it in that, to have us, hire us to do it, is pretty objective. I
2: mean, this has been, I think it's fair to say, a, a historic period for fixed income and for bonds relative to stocks. And when we talk about, you know, the road ahead for the market, stock market, one of the problems, the headwind has always been over the last year, well, there's competition. And there hasn't been competition and it's seemingly for forever that we, we can remember. But now there now there is. Does that opportunity still exist
5: in yeah, the magnitude that it has? <laughs> so it's pretty incredible. I show this chart that I, that I think blows people away. Normally when companies borrow, it used to be you borrowed one to three year money and you would borrowed at one and a half, two percent, and the equity market, the earnings yield of the equity market was seven or eight. Now they're both five and a quarter, almost exactly the same percentage. You think about it, I can own companies, I can finance companies, not take a lot of interest rate risk, keep it short, and I'm getting the same yield as the earnings yield of the equity market. So what does that tell you? Equity multiples are too high. That being said, I actually don't think the equity market is going down much because I think the technicals and equities are amazing. But you talk about a historic opportunity to build income and put that next to your next to your uh, equity portfolio. It's pretty pretty extraordinary. So you like the stock market here? So, I think the, uh, if you take versus fixed income, where companies can finance themselves, which is not just a quirky metric, companies finance themselves for CapEx, m and buy back their stock. Today, that's much more attractive, on a, certainly on a historic basis. The reason why I don't think equities are going down, that you're getting a tremendous amount of issuance in fixed income. Think about, we're gonna get a trillion of treasury bills in the next three months. Equity market, not a lot of supply. Most people are short equities. If, if money just incrementally comes into the equity market through 401k, equity buybacks, the market just has a hard time going down. The natural gravitation is higher. So I think the equity market is fine. I think it should be a good portion of your of your portfolio. But I think now you got to build more income.
2: Okay, so, so separate, I'm glad you went here. Separate fact from fiction for us because I just had this conversation with our two prior guests, and many are coming on the network saying that once this debt ceiling thing is figured out, the Treasury issuance is going to be so large, don't know the market can handle that. That's a negative for the market. Is it or is it
5: not? It is. I mean, if you do so it's a negative for the market, like I say, I mean, I'll talk about the balances. We're going to take a trillion dollars a bill. So think about the Treasury hasn't been, has postponed liabilities. You've got to build the Treasury's general account. That's 500 billion plus another 500. You got a trillion dollars. That drains liquidity. If you track how the markets do relative to draining liquidity, it's pretty symmetric to QE. Markets tend to have a hard time during that. Here's the counter today, and this is why I think it's a hard call. Do you think the markets going down DEFINITIONALLY? People are sitting on immense amounts of cash. I mean, the amount of money that's going into money market funds every week, every month, it's almost six trillion dollars. I think anytime you see a significant dip in the market, you'll see that just that natural I got to put money to work. So I just think it's hard to say today that gosh it's going down because we're going to drain that liquidity. But there's no doubt, there's no ambiguity around it. It is a drag. Well, when you dra-
2: when you drain the liquidity, what does it do to yields? Which have been, you know, rising of late, obviously not maybe not today, but certainly it feels like almost every day they've been going up.
5: So I mean, I, I mean, it's definitional. Maybe you push that much supply into the market, and particularly think about that supply is coming in without a lot of interest. You don't have to go out the curve. It's an alternative to the other to what you get in fixed income. So, is there a natural migration to yields higher? I think so. But you know, one of the things you watch in the last couple of days, particularly at month end, people are sitting on their hands, worried about the debt ceiling, worried about this draining of liquidity, worried about a lot of things, economy slowing, et cetera. People are sitting on their hands. It doesn't take much to actually get these markets. People have to put money to work. What do you make of what's happening with tech? I mean, you're the CIO of
2: the Global Allocation Team, so yeah. you don't only think about fixed income, you think about the markets.
5: So if you said to me, what would you do with tech, and I've been on your show many times over the years, I love tech. If you think about where the economy's going, and structurally, we could talk about AI, or valuations too full in some names, they seem pretty elevated. There's a structural dynamic. Think about how infrastructure is going to build in this economy. Where's CapEx going? It's not coming in the traditional places. It's coming in AI. It's coming in automation. It's coming in software. You, th- you look at the big tech companies, their ability to create real cash flow to support R&D. Listen, I think tech has still got to be, you know, we build equity portfolios. I want convex upside and tech is still the place to get it. Is tech the, the, the biggest part of, of where you think a portfolio should be built? Uh, for sure, I think they, so. You know, y- there are times when it gets elevated. You think about the moves. If you strip out the seven top seven companies, how much they've driven the equity market? It's had a good run. But if you said to me, I'm building a portfolio for the next two to three years, tech. By the way, think about the other structural healthcare. It has got to be a big part of that of that portfolio. I think defense today. You think about how the world is going. That's got to be a good part of the portfolio. But yeah, I build in equity. I think it's so different, equity and fixed income, equity. You want to be the, You want to take the upside. You want to be what I call the bottom part of the cap stack, where you're going to have real growth. And I want to say one last thing. When you grow like that and you throw off that cash flow, it goes back into R&D. If you said to me one thing that drives return, it's investment in R&D. And you're seeing that, you're seeing that play out today. All right.
2: So let's talk Fed, OK? Because okay. I want your opinion on what you see and what you think is going to happen. Parker, Philly Fed, I think we can take a bit of a skip for a meeting, he said just a short time ago. He went on to say a skip would not be a pause. What do you think happens? Are they done?
5: So, listen, the inflation data is uh, is concerning. It's just not coming down fast enough. And I, listen, I think we're gonna be, you know, you look at the Fed projections for unemployment. I don't think we're gonna get there. I think there is a dearth, and you see the, the JOLTS report today. Look at things like leisure, education, healthcare. I think employment's gonna stay robust for a period of time. So is the Fed gonna do more? I think they should pause, personally. I think there's more data. You're gonna get another payroll report. You're gonna get another CPI before the next meeting. And then there's more data to come you've moved 500 basis points. That will work its way through the system. Inflation is coming down. It's just not coming down fast enough. There's a trade-off, you know, getting into a technical discussion about what is the equilibrium interest rate for the economy and for the financial system. Clearly, you're high relative to the financial system. You saw that play out in the banking system. There's no risk, I don't think, in waiting. See how the data plays out if you got to go again. And I think they could go again. But I think there's no reason not to wait at this point. I mean, point.
2: Governor Jefferson was like, well, one year is not enough time to see what 500 basis right. points is going to do once it really filters in and through the system. We're trying to make decisions after we've done this historical um, you know, move by the, by the Fed and assume that we're going to have all the answers now.
5: <coughs> That's good. I mean, I think you also have to build on to that. We also kept rates too low for too long and did QE for too long. So you think about what happened. You kept rates too low, too long, and then all of a sudden, you shocked the system. Well, you you watch that play out in regional banking system, small banking system. You shocked the system higher. Let's see. You certainly see commercial real estate. You certainly see in, in leveraged loans. You're going to see a lot of rollover financing It's going to be harder to do. Why not see that play out? And by the way, if inflation's not coming down fast enough, then you could go again. But, there's no reason not to wait and see how this, how this works through. How,
2: how concerned are you about commercial real estate and what it could mean to some banks, particularly regional banks, which have been sort of the epicenter of the worries?
5: So I'm not worried about it as a, as a systemic basis. So you think about, I mean, residential real estate, you think about what happened in no you think about what happened in the savings and loan crisis. Residential real estate is where three quarters of the wealth in the country is. That is a systemic problem. That you can't disrupt. Commercial real estate is is a pressure point for regional banks a pressure point for small business you will see for small banks you will see some credit contraction is it a systemic risk it's not a systemic risk but it will it will result in some slowdown in credit extension which is part of the view of let's see that play out Do
2: we have a recession or no
5: I listen I I think growth is gonna be better than people think you got a 3.4 percent unemployment rate with over 4 percent wage and 1.9 trillion of excess savings it's pretty hard to go in a recession you know, you look at surveys, consumers are in a bad mood, but they spend like crazy. I think I think the economy is in good shape. Can we have a dip in the second half? Maybe, but I think it's I think that's a lot of nuance to it what is a strong economy. Fed cuts anytime soon? I think next year they're going to cut. I think it's uh, I think markets have been pricing in cuts because of the risk that the system tips over because of a significant credit crunch. I don't think the Fed is going to do a let's cut 25 base points at a time. I think as you get in the back part of the year, mostly in, uh, I think, in 2024, they should cut rates. I think that you're talking about the debt ceiling. If you keep rates too high too long, what it does to the cost of your debt service is, uh, is significant. I think they got to bring rates down.
2: All right. Make that the last word. I enjoyed it. Congratulations to you mate. on yes, this sir. big day for you and uh, BlackRock as well. That's Rick Reeder joining us here at Post 9. Up next, searching for opportunity, Bill Miller the fourth, is with us. He just acquired a majority stake in Miller Value Partners as well. We'll find out where he is seeing upside in the market just ahead. Closing Bell Just right back.
1: Selling smoothies is what I do, but for
3: small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.
2: Welcome back. A shakeup at Miller Value Partners this week after Bill Miller IV announced he's acquired the majority stake of the firm. Bill, who now holds an 80% stake in MVP, is now the firm's chief investment officer and chairman and will continue to serve as the portfolio manager of the Miller Income Fund. Bill Miller IV joins me now. It's good to see you. Welcome. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Scott. So the bottom line here is this is your show now. What, what is... the the Bill Miller the fourth show going to look like
6: well Scott I think the whole idea here is to reinvent the customer experience in active management you think about what active management has done over the past 20 to 30 years it's continued to lose share to passive fees have been too high Uh, the investment strategies are not all that transparent generally speaking not well marketed so we want to change all of that because we are the primary client here. And so we want to actually reinvent that experience for everyone else in our funds as well. We want to be more transparent. We want to let people know what we're doing in the funds as we do them. And we want to find new ways to help our
2: clients. How will your philosophy uh, on investing differ, if at all, from from your dad's?
6: Well, I learned most of what we're doing from him. So there's going to be a lot of similarities. Uh, First and foremost, we're going to invest in a very concentrated way. It's very hard to have a, you know, 50 or 100 good ideas, so we're gonna find 30 to 40 and, and bet them where our convictions lie relative to where we think our edges are. So there's not gonna be a ton of transition from an investment philosophy perspective. You're just gonna see more transparent communication from us, I think.
2: And what role, if any, will, will your dad have in this whole process? We've just be, you know, been so accustomed to having him in that role. Um, you lean on him for as a part of the vetting process. Well, how, how will he play, if at all?
6: He'll have as much of a role as he wants to, and he's certainly still involved in the markets for a good portion of every single day right now. And so as long as he wants to do that, we're going to welcome his input as much as we can get it. Uh, we certainly want more from him rather than less. We'd love him to be out in front of people marketing ideas and, and uh, what he's thinking about, too, not only in the markets but outside. it. So he's going to continue to be an advisor and play an
2: important role with us. You know, what I, what I thought was interesting as part of this transition, and I want you to explain this better than I'm going to ask it. Um, you no longer own the Opportunity Trust Fund. That's my understanding, which means you no longer own Amazon and Alphabet and Meta. Now, Is that true? And I, I ask it, and it's, it's somewhat startling, I think, because your father is so synonymous with Amazon that it was a bit of a surprise when I learned this information, and I just want you to verify that I have it correctly so that our viewers understand it fully.
6: Sure. So, uh, Miller Value Partners is going to continue to manage the Miller Income Fund, which is a flexible income fund. We're also exploring new ways to help clients and new strategies that they may be more interested in from a fee perspective, a alignment perspective, all kinds of other perspectives. So. His strategy, the Opportunity Trust that he ran for so many years is actually now managed by Patient Capital and Samantha McLemore, and that's her RIA, and so she's calling the shots on that particular fund. MVP is now actively exploring new wrappers and new ways to help clients, that, that, where you may see some similar names like that.
2: Sure, but you know, how do you, as we look to what's been so red hot in the market right now, AI and AI-related trades, and big tech in general, so how do you view that in, in the here and now? O- on your own, do you look to buy those names back? Do you feel under so to speak, in AI-related stocks? How do you view it?
6: Well, what's really interesting right now about the market
2: and AI is
6: those are the only really, the only names that are going up are AI and big tech right now. So if you actually look at the market breadth over the past 60 days, 80% of the market is underperforming the market. And that's because things like NVIDIA are going up, Facebook, Google, those are the only things going up. Everything else in the market's not doing all that well. They tend to be more economically sensitive. So what's happening is the feds are moving capital and liquidity from the system. So capital intensive things are not doing, Facebook is not a capital intensive business. NVIDIA, well, a little different, but um, uh, Google's not a capital intensive business. Businesses that don't need capital are doing fantastically well and that's the only thing people wanna buy. So it's very hard when you run a value-oriented strategy or an income strategy to then say, okay, where are you gonna get yield, not in NVIDIA. But um, it's an interesting question as to how that plays out. If you look at what happened in the year 2000, stock called Intel was all the rage, it's $75 a share, trading at a huge multiple, not dissimilar from NVIDIA, actually it was less expensive than NVIDIA then, it's now $27 a share today, it was $75 then. So how well is NVIDIA gonna do over the next, 20 years in this valuation? I don't know, it's certainly not something I want to own at these multiples. I would certainly be more interested in the Facebook at 10 and a half times even though than Nvidia at 50 times even though.
2: But see, I find that sort of ironic as well, whereas, you know, your father could justify sort of the valuation of Amazon, even as a value investor, whereas you can't justify the valuation of Nvidia as the same value investor, so to speak.
6: Well, I don't think he owns Nvidia. Um so it's a little bit of a different situation. Agree though, we do have somewhat we have different investing styles, but one place where we certainly are aligned, one technology we both love is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's up sixty percent year to date. It's done seventy percent a year over the past decade, best performing asset nine of the past twelve years. We obviously have a big personal stake in it. But it's a really interesting new technology that a lot of people still are underinvested in, continue to, to not not understand or think about properly. We absolutely love it.
2: Are we we going to emerge from what, you know, many have described as the crypto winter? Are we in the process of doing that? Bitcoin's, what, 27,000 as I'm looking right now, and it's been in a pretty pretty tight range now for a while.
6: Yeah, but if you've owned Bitcoin for more than four years, you never, no one's owned Bitcoin for more than four years, they've lost money. So I think that's an interesting point. If you look at some of the feedback loops involved and the way it's, produced uh, and managed uh, it's it's incredible so um well we continue to be massively optimistic about it and i think it's very important to draw a difference between bitcoin and crypto because they're two entirely different things bitcoin is a cryptocurrency but if you look at all the other ones there's some very fundamental differences in, in how they were formed and created what the verification mechanisms look like and it's really important to understand those differences
2: when you bring up the intel uh, example on valuation and where the stock price was back in the day so to speak and we compare it to Nvidia are you insinuating that you think that the way these stocks have traded were in a bubble related to AI or not?
6: Well it could certainly go farther but if you look at the, what the options market is saying about Nvidia, I mean you can write calls on, on Nvidia right now you're out and get a 24 percent yield so yes it's going to continue to be massively bubble. people are trading this sh- short term in this thing Do I like it over the next 20 years relative to all kinds of other things out there? Uh, It's probably not the one I want to be swinging at.
2: And in terms of growth versus value, um, obviously, I I would think you're hopeful that this, what appeared to be throughout last year in some respects, um, a renaissance in value, at least from the, let's say, the October lows, um, now everything's back towards growth. So was that just uh, two steps forward and then we're gonna go back to five steps back for value investing? How do you see that playing out? I think it's
6: really interesting to think about what value these massive tech companies have and what the limits are of, those, of that value. So if you think about Facebook, how many of those employees at Facebook have any impact on tomorrow's revenue? Probably very few. Probably the same with Microsoft. So you've got these massively valuable things. You know the top five stocks in the market today comprise 25% of the market cap? I mean, that's unprecedented. So you're seeing this massive concentration at the top, and yes, the best performers have always outperformed, and it's been a you know a power law in that a small percentage of the market tends to drive all the performance, but you're seeing unprecedented amounts of concentration. It would not surprise me at all if over the next few years, regulators came and started to break that up and try to make things a little more competitive. But there's all kinds of ways that these massive things could lose, and what we're trying to do is find things with low expectations that we think have a, a high
2: probability of performing that market. What, what's your most recent buy? What, what's your most favorite name right now?
6: Well, so as an income investor, I'll just give you two names that are not in the fund. We can't talk about what we're doing in the fund, but I'll just throw two names out there that I think are really interesting and that people would know. So a company called Stellantis, that's Fiat Chrysler. It trades at one times operating profit. One times operating profit. We think fair value is much higher today. It has a 9.5% dividend yield. It's covered by about, uh, it has a stack of cash on the balance sheet that pays four or five years worth of dividends. They don't do any cash work. Um, So they've got this huge pile of net cash. That's a 9.5% yield, super safe yield. So there's all kinds of interesting stuff in the market if you are creative and look around. And I mean, Verizon right now, 7.5% dividend yield. Trades at a big discount to the to the market relative to where it's always been. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff, even if you're concerned about recession. Rise is an interesting one if you're concerned about
2: recession. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Appreciate having you. Congrats. Thanks so much, Scott. It was great. All right. That's Bill Miller the fourth joining us here on Closing Bell. Up next, number one retail analyst Matt Boss of JP Morgan. He breaks down what he's watching when Nordstrom reports in overtime. Macy's in the morning. We're talking retail when we come back. I want to alert you that that moment in Washington, D.C. has come. The House of Representatives beginning to vote on the debt ceiling deal. We're going to monitor any de- developments, bring you the speed, uh, bring it up to speed on the very latest. Uh, it's not supposed to end anytime soon. I should, I should tell you that first and foremost. Some are suggesting it could go until 8.30 tonight when the vote closes, but you can start voting as of now, and you can see the tally on your screen here. The Speaker McCarthy predicting it will pass. He has said, uh, telling reporters, quote, uh, it's going to become law, and uh, we shall see in what has been uh, not the easiest process to get to this moment, but we'll find out by later this evening how we, uh, how we end up there, and the markets, of course, continue to watch that closely. Let's send it over to Seema Modi now for a look at the key stocks she's watching. Seema.
0: As you watch that vote, Scott, take a look at some of the biggest movers. Advanced auto parts sinking after a big miss on earnings and revenue. The company also cutting its dividend and outlook, citing higher costs, inflationary pressures, and supply chain problems. The stock is now on track for its worst day ever, down 35%. Meantime, SoFi is on pace for its best day since August. Those gains Really being fueled by the debt ceiling deal, which would cement the resumption of student loan payments. SoFi has reportedly said that the moratorium on payments is weighing on its business. So hopes for the bill's passage has shares up almost 32 percent in two days, up 15 percent on the day. Scott.
2: All right, Seema, thank you. We'll see you in a bit. Last chance to weigh in on our Twitter question. We asked, do you think the Fed will raise interest rates in June? You can head at at CBC Closing Bell on Twitter. The results are right after this break. Let's do the results of our Twitter question. There you go. Will the Fed raise rates in June? Wow, 61% say yes, almost 62 All right, we'll discuss. Coming up in the Market Zone, up next, star analyst Dan Ives. He counts down to Salesforce's results, what he is watching for in overtime. That and more in the zone next. We're now in the closing bell market zone CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day plus Dan Ives of Wedbush on Salesforce which reports in overtime today and JP Morgan's retail and leisure analyst Matt Boss digging into the department stores ahead of Nordstrom and Macy earnings. Uh, all right, Mr. Santoli, 62% of our voters yeah. said there's going to be a hike in June. I think that's, uh,
1: that that conventional wisdom is at least two or three hours old, <laughs> yeah. because what's gone on in the afternoon and on in the midday when we spoke, I said, you know, it's one of those days where the market's starting to, to think again, oh, the Fed's going to hike into a, a little bit of a soft patch in the economy. And then you had Fed speakers just grab the wheel and steer market expectations toward a likely pause with maybe a resumption thereafter. Now, we could get a blowout jobs number on Friday and it could change the equation but it's very interesting and it's a reminder that the equity market which has firmed up throughout the day at least at the index level it requires multiple things to break at once to get really a lot of selling pressure taking the the big and the small down so it's still an uneven market no no real improvement in market breadth today but you did have some life in the defensive stocks which by the way I came in this morning to all the technicians saying wow utilities and staples they look broken and here they are bouncing today
2: all right Dan Ives waiting for Salesforce, as everybody is, after the bell in overtime tonight. Um, how many times are we gonna hear AI
7: related to this one? I mean, look-
2: 2,000,
7: 3,000, how many? I think it's, it's definitely gonna be double digits, but because ultimately, for when you look at Benioff and Salesforce, there's a golden opportunity for them to further mine that install base, and I think they're not being talked about as much as an AI play because of what's gone on in the last few quarters. I think this is just another quarter step in the right direction in terms of margins, in terms of growth, I think better than feared. And in my opinion, it's one of the best risk rewards out there in software. I mean, you're not looking for much though, right? There's not that much
2: enthusiasm about what this company might deliver in overtime.
7: Well I think that's what I love about the setup because in my opinion, Benioff, one of the best executors out there, you have an install base that's really unparalleled and now when you look at the opportunity with Slack, Tableau and when I look at AI, I believe that ultimately could be incrementally a $4 billion a year opportunity For Benioff and Salesforce, I think this is just another example of some of the transformation that's going on right now in this market.
2: I know, but you've mentioned the setup. I mean, the stock's up 35% in three months.
7: Why? Well, first of all, I think this was a name many were negative on because of margins and because of the Slack deal. I think ultimately, they really overestimated in terms of what was actually going to happen, because Benioff, back against the wall, came out with a Hall of Fame quarter last quarter, and when you look from an actual valuation perspective, this is a stock, without being egregious, could be $250, $260, and I think it's just another example. You bet against Benioff and Salesforce, you are proven wrong. Okay, Matt Boss, Nordstrom, OT, Macy's out tomorrow AM. Let's talk Nordstrom
2: first. What are we expecting?
4: Yeah, look, Scott, I think what you're seeing right now from the retail space is the tale of two halves. In fact, I remember you and I talking about this to close the year and uh, actually calling for this tale of two halves for the group. I think that's exactly what you're going to get from Nordstrom, the two themes. That we're hearing in our work is, number one, the aspirational consumer. In fact, Capri this morning talked about it. Mm-hmm. That consumer is slowing. The growth on a year-over-year basis has absolutely moderated. That consumer, in my opinion, is focused on uh, experience and leisure. We're seeing that in our leisure coverage in cruise lines with bookings out through the middle of 24. And I think the other theme that you're going to hear about on both Nordstrom and Macy's tomorrow is the value-focused consumer. That lower income consumer is focused on necessities and that consumer is holding back on on discretionary purchases.
2: I mean, Capri specifically mentioned expectations of slowing sales from
4: department stores. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the consumer is being very discerning. And I think what you really have happening overall, the consumer picture I think is resilient. When you look at it on a four year basis to normalize for year over year, meaning one year, When you look at that picture, there's no question that growth in the consumer space is slowing. And that's because, look, you've pulled government assistance, $25 billion year over year. The savings rate is also normalizing. So you have a year over year normalizing consumer. But you look at the growth from two years ago and you smooth out that curve. The consumer, in my opinion, multi-year is fine, but on a year over year basis, We're in a vacuum right now where the growth is slowing. Then to your point, you are absolutely seeing a shift more towards experiential and leisure in that in that category that we cover and away from department stores and mall-based specialty
2: man you got a tough market in terms of retail to navigate and choosing winners
4: versus losers who's the best bet right now value convenience so I, i would stick with best in class which would be a tj maxx for us and then i would look at best in class brands so lululemon has the growth And if anything, I think the pandemic has created an inflection in terms of casualization. Uh, I also like self-help on Nike. Tapestry and the handbags and accessory space, I think, has the global diversification. So you need self-help and you need things outside of North America macro on a one-year basis. Those are the things I'd be buying today for the opportunity as we move into 24 and you start to see this consumer picture on a year over year and some of these shifts normalize. Because, like I said, the underlying picture for me on the consumer is actually more resilient than people believe. All
2: right. Good stuff. Matthew, thank you. That's Matt Boss joining us from J.P. Morgan, as you can clearly see there. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. We're approaching the two minute warning, Mr. Santoli, before we get into some pretty important earnings, right? Salesforce. CrowdStrike, Okta. We're all over the cloud. A lot of these stocks have done quite well coming into the print, too.
1: They have, although, again, with Salesforce up a lot since the last earnings report, but it's only kind of halfway back from its peak to trough decline. I think you have a lot of stocks in tech in that zone. Uh, Salesforce has rarely been this inexpensive or uh, relative to free cash flow in its history. Now, that doesn't mean that's how it's going to trade or that the print is going to satisfy people. But I think there's an eye of the beholder effect in a lot of these stocks, depending on when you start the clock looking at them. I think it's worth mentioning we had some pretty sloppy earnings responses today with advanced auto parts, with HPE and HPQ. And the overall market is kind of, again, it's kind of ragged. It seems to reflect relatively low expectations, low momentum in the market. It's the kind of market where everyone's selling something to buy something that seems a little bit safer or more predictable. Uh, And that's why I think the market breadth is not really cooperated. If if I could see an upside to today's action, it's that we got a report that scared the market briefly because it seemed like it was too strong, too many job openings out there. And you had Fed speakers come out more or less say, don't worry about that. We still have a pause on the table. It seems silly. It seems fickle on an intraday basis. But that's what we're trading right now. Are we going to over tighten? Is it going to make a recession a goal and not a a nasty side effect of what the Fed's been doing? Or can we muddle through for a while? And do we have soft landing still, uh, you know, as a plausible
2: scenario? And whether whether or not we get a a so-called June swoon uh, is going to center around the very stocks that yeah. got us to where we are through May. Most likely, yes. Yeah. So if those have
1: to cool off as they seem like they probably do, uh, the question is what else happens to the rest of the tank? I mentioned earlier, you know, it's Pharma contributing the upside today to the index and its staples and its utilities. Those aren't leadership groups, but it shows you we're rotating as opposed to liquidating right
2: now May's a wrap. There's a bell. Tomorrow. I'm going to send it to the closing bell. Well, that does it for us. I mean,
1: I'm- Selling smoothies is what I do. But
3: for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too. So he knew how to
0: help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.